Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called A Decisive Moment Worth Singing About, Remembering the Protestant Reformation. It's a guest essay by Sam Rowan. Sam earned his Ph.D. at Michigan State and has spent his adult life in international ministries, most recently in theological education in Asia. Sam's essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 4th, 2007, and is an essay to celebrate Reformation Day 2007. When Mark Knoll decided to write a general introduction to the history of the church for students and for members of a Sunday school class in his church, he gave his book the title Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity. His idea was to select events which for him were turning points that substantially changed the course of the church. Protestant reformer Martin Luther and the Reformation of the 16th century formed one of those points for Knoll. Identifying the acts of God in providence is a complex and murky task. Way back in the 6th century, Pope Gregory the Great wrote his famous book called Rules for the Clergy. These so-called rules for pastoral care form the basis for all subsequent writings in the field of practical theology. But Gregory also set in motion processes that eventually necessitated what became known as the Reformation. Those same acts, however, also guaranteed that there would be a church worth reforming. Martin Luther embodied a similar mixture of the good, the bad, and the ugly. He was not a particularly pleasant person. He was sometimes crude to the point that he embarrassed his friends with his opinions and vulgar forms of expression. In his papal bull called Ex Surge Domine, Pope Leo X was not without his reasons for deriding Luther as a wild boar rampaging in the vineyard of the Lord. Luther himself was perhaps the quintessential exemplar of his famous statement that we are at the same time both justified and sinners. Luther struggled with periods of deep depression. He became introspective in his search for the assurance of God's acceptance. It was on the counsel of his monastery supervisor, Johann von Staupitz, the superintendent of the German Augustinians, that Luther began to study the scriptures. This journey into the word of God to find his peace with God laid the foundation for the remainder of his life. It was in particular Paul's letter to the Romans that assured him in what became the clarion call of Protestants that justification was by faith alone. On April the 18th, 1521, Luther was called to appear before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, at the Diet of Worms in order to give an account of his writings. 
With a pile of books and pamphlets on the table in front of him, Luther was told to change what he had written. He said he would gladly change them if it could be shown that what he had written was out of harmony with the prophets and the gospels. Again ordered to recant, Luther uttered the words which forever change the social, cultural, economic, and religious landscape of Western Europe. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. More important than any of the conclusions reached by Luther or the other reformers for that matter, he showed us the true way to hear the voice of God by attentively listening to the word of God in scripture. Habakkuk in the lectionary for this week had a similar crisis in his day, which was the same in principle as Luther's crisis. Habakkuk complained about the disobedience of the children of Israel. They no longer heard or understood the voice of God. Habakkuk said that they had so-called paralyzed the Torah in chapter 1, verse 4. The law was the voice of God for the ancient people of God. The lectionary, lectionary reading from Psalm 119 clearly shows this. It's the longest chapter in the Bible with 150 verses, each of which contains a reference to God's word. Habakkuk was distressed and longed for God to bring judgment against Israel. This was a dangerous request because when God speaks, it's not always in harmony with the way we would want to have things work out. God said he would do something that even if he told Habakkuk, it would be hard for him to believe. God said he would use the wicked Babylonians as the means of bringing divine judgment on Israel. This, of course, caused Habakkuk a great deal of stress. He did, however, have the faith to say in chapter 2, verse 1, I will look to see what God will say to me. When he hears the voice of God, he offers his praise, even though he still doesn't understand all the implications. We read in chapter 2, verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In the midst of Luther's crisis, he penned a loose paraphrase of Psalm 130. This hymn has enriched the liturgy of the church ever since it was written in 1523. It's made it possible for our theology to sing. And so this Reformation Day, I suggest that we remember it in the theology of the Protestant reformers as in singing. Listen to Luther's paraphrase of Psalm 130. From trouble deep I cry to thee, Lord God, hear thou my crying. Thy gracious ear, O turn to me, open to my sighing. 
For if thou meanst to look upon the wrong and evil that is done, who, Lord, can stand before thee? With thee stands nothing but thy grace to cover all our failing. The best life cannot win the race. Good works are not availing. Before thee no one glory can, and so must tremble every man, and live by thy grace only. Although our sin be great, God's grace is greater to relieve us. His hand in helping, nothing stays, the hurt, however grievous. The shepherd good alone is he, who will at last set Israel free from all and every trespass. And now for further reflection. On the Protestant Reformation, see the new book by Alistair McGrath entitled Christianity's Dangerous Idea, The Protestant Revolution, A History from the 16th Century to the 21st, published in 2007. Secondly, what do you think Luther meant when he described people as simultaneously saint and sinner? Number three, what are the ramifications of justification by faith alone? The idea that God's righteousness is imputed to us rather than imparted to us. That it's a declaration by God rather than a demonstration by us. Some critics have described justification by faith as a so-called legal fiction. And finally, consider a letter that Luther wrote to his younger protege, Philip Melanchthon, who was overly scrupulous and anxious about God's grace. Luther rebuked him in a letter which includes a famous phrase. Listen to Luther. If you are a preacher of grace, then preach true grace and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. And so be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. Thanks again to Dr. Sam Rowan for his essay on Remembering Reformation Day 2007. For books this week, I review an important new book by V.J. Prashad. The title of the book is The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. New York, The New Press, 2007, 237 pages. In 1927, 200 delegates from 37 states and regions gathered in Brussels, Belgium, and formed what was called the League Against Imperialism. In doing so, they gave an institutional voice to the hopes, dreams, and aspirations 
of the vast majority of the people in the world who eventually found their country sandwiched between the so-called first world of the United States and the second world of the Soviet Union. Not wanting to align with either empire, from that meeting in 1927 forward, the so-called third world became a prolonged international project and not just a place of misery. The setting was fraught with irony, for Belgium, of course, was then led by King Leopold II, whose shameless pillage of the Congo had few peers. In Prashad's history of the majority of the world's people, he traces this elusive quest, its problems and pitfalls, and the causes and consequences of its failure. Prashad's organization takes one on a global tour. Each one of his 18 chapter titles is a major city of the Third World Project. And so, for example, in part one, he considers the quest, Paris, Brussels, Bandung, Cairo, Buenos Aires, Tehran, Belgrade, and Havana. In part two, he looks at the pitfalls through Algiers, La Paz, Bali, Tawang, Caracas, and Arusha. And then in part three, he looks at what he calls the assassinations of the project. New Delhi, Kingston, Singapore, and Mecca. The third world, he says, sought three goals. Number one, political independence and self-rule. Number two, peaceful coexistence in nonviolent international relations. And number three, using the United Nations as the means to push its agenda. All in stark contrast to the militarism, economic dominance, and ostensible superiority of the American and Soviet spheres. Along the way, Prashad tackles most every aspect of this struggle, including education, bureaucratism, land reform, suffrage, religion, the role of revolutionary violence, foreign aid, transnational corporations, the villagization of mil millions of people, the debt crisis, natural resources, and women's discrimination. The Third World Project failed badly for many complex reasons, says Prashad. After freeing themselves from the shackles of imperial overlords, countries tended to centralize power in the state instead of establishing effective social democracies. They stifled dissent, ignored rule of law, they plundered national treasure, and set up military regimes ruled by dictator thugs. And nothing good, he writes, comes from a military dictatorship. The predator First World, for its part, continued their economic plunder thanks to the threat of overwhelming military, political, and economic means. And thus, what Prashad describes as the so-called, quote-unquote, catastrophic demise of the Third World Project. Crushing debt and widening income gaps between rich and poor nations are only the most obvious signs that most people in the world remain marginalized by their own states and exploited by the first world. But at least now they have a history of their struggle, thanks to Vijay Prashad. Vijay Prashad, 
The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. For film this week, I review David Lynch's new film from 2006 called Inland Empire. Writer and director David Lynch has earned many film awards, but he asks a lot of his, of his viewers. Five minutes into this film, life-sized rabbits appear in a living room dressed in suits and ties. Prostitutes dance the 1960s song Locomotion. This film also lasts three hours and has no linear plot. Time morphs back and forth between past, present, and future. Places move between Poland and Hollywood. David Lynch is either coy or just brutally honest when the only description he will give of Inland Empire is that, quote, it's about a woman in trouble. Other than that, many viewers compare the film to human dreaming or the interior landscape of human consciousness disjointed, disassociative, vivid, scary, and sometimes an unrelated stream of consciousness. Laura Dern's performance alone makes the film worth watching. She plays three roles in the film. As a movie about a film and the actress who stars in it, there's the sense that reality is a social construction that depends upon the viewer and not something objective with a fixed meaning. Lynch shot the film with an off-the-rack sunny digital camera, and as with his other films, the soundtrack is ominously eerie and quirky. David Lynch fans will rave at this film, and average moviegoers will just scratch their heads. Inland Empire by David Lynch And finally for this week, we've posted a poem by the German pastor Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller lived from 1892 to 1984. He protested Hitler's anti-Semitic measures in person to Hitler and was eventually arrested and then imprisoned for eight years from 1937 to 1945. He once very famously confessed, quote, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his own enemies. The poem describes the passivity of German intellectuals as the Nazis purged group after group of targeted people. The poem comes in many slightly different versions and in fact, the exact origin of the poem is subject of some debate. But often described uh, by, often ascribed to Martin Niemöller is the very short poem, First They Came. First they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists, but I was neither, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And when they came for me, there was no one left 
to speak for me. Pastor Martin Niemöller from 1892 to 1984. First, they came. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 4th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.